He has come to be Jesus, the Lord and Savior. Well, this is an exciting day, and uh, I am glad that you are here and able to take part in this day. You say, Pastor, why is it exciting? Well, there's two reasons. Number one, we're going to have a baptismal service later in, uh, at the end of the worship service. Actually, it's not the end of the worship service. It's just a continuation. We'll go out the front door here and come around to the back, and uh, we have three candidates for baptism today. And those three are young ones. And so we're, we've made arrangements. The King's kids are going to come out. So parents, you'll be able to pick your kids up back here today. They'll come out and they'll get to observe the baptismal service as well. And uh, we can all go out and enjoy that and support those who are being baptized today. The other reason that I think it's an exciting day is we're going to begin a new series in the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, that's uh, the second book in the Bible, in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Mark is, um, it's the Gospel that kind of gets forgotten. You know, I don't know if you've ever done a study of the Gospel of Mark, but it's the shortest of the four. Um, there's a lot of the material that's in Mark that's also included in some of the other Gospels. But for whatever reason, poor little Mark seems to get forgotten. So we're going we're gonna to look into this amazing book and see what it is that God has for us there. And um, I think we will benefit from it. We're going to interrupt our study in Mark, though, later on for Thanksgiving and then for Christmas. But once the first of the year comes around, then we'll be able to take up our study in Mark once again and finish it sometime next year. So, as we get ready to look, let's look to the author of Scripture for wisdom and insight. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this book. And maybe we've never studied it before. Maybe we're more familiar with the life of Christ from the pages of Matthew and Luke and John. But Lord, there's amazing things here in this little book of Mark. And I pray that we will have hearts that are open and ears that are open and a spirit that's willing to listen and to learn from you father teach us from this book fully inspired fully authoritative the things that we need to know to live life today and to be able to share these good tidings with those who are around us Father, as we look into your word now, speak to us through your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, since we might not know so much about Mark, let me give you a little background information to start with. Mark, also called John Mark, was a close companion of the Apostle Peter. And he keeps popping up in the book of Acts. And that's where we discover that his surname was John. John Mark was his, his uh, full name. Uh, his mother's house, according to Acts chapter 12, was there in Jerusalem. <clears throat> Excuse me. And when Peter was miraculously released from prison in response to the prayers of God's people, he went to the home of John Mark. He went to, to that location. And of course, that's where 
Uh, the young girl uh, was, um, was watching for him. Her name was Rhoda, not to be confused with our Rhoda here, but uh, she was watching and she was a servant girl there and, and Peter shows up and she goes in and says, hey, guess what? <laughs> the guy we're praying for, he's standing out here at the door and they all said, oh no, it's got to be his spirit. He, you know, They were praying for his release and then when he was released, it was hard for him to understand that he was released. Have you ever been in that situation? You've been praying for God to do something and then when he did it, it's like, no, no, that couldn't be. Well, if you've ever been in that situation, you're not alone because these folks were in that situation as well. But sure enough, Peter showed up at John Mark's house after he was released. John Mark was a cousin of Barnabas. We're familiar with Barnabas there in uh, the book of Acts. He was the fellow who took the Apostle Paul who was just barely known then, he was more well known as Saul, the persecutor of the church. Barnabas comes along this guy beside him and, and takes him under his wing and introduces him to the believers. And Barnabas and Saul, or Paul, the apostle, have a long and fruitful ministry together until... John Mark goes along with them on their first missionary journey and John decides he's going to abandon ship and he gets off the island of Crete and he says, see you later guys, I'm going back home. And it created a little friction between Paul and Barnabas. So much so that a little while later when Paul said, hey, let's go back and visit the churches that we planted, Barnabas says, excellent idea. We're going to get John Mark and we're going to take him with us. And Saul, Paul says, no, no, we're not going to take him. And they couldn't agree. And Paul was, I think, very frustrated with John Mark because he had left. And he didn't want to repeat that thing again. So Barnabas took John and Paul took Silas and Timothy and others. And each one had profitable ministries. And that breach, that difficulty that was had between Paul and Barnabas over John Mark was obviously later resolved because John Mark shows up in Paul's life on numerous other occasions and toward the end of his life when Paul is writing to his son in the faith, Timothy, he says, make sure that you get John Mark and bring him along with you because he's profitable for me in the ministry. Have you ever messed up? Have you ever thought that what you did was so bad that the Lord could never use you again? You failed God in some way? Take heart, beloved. Because John Mark didn't always have the great spiritual strength that we would think someone who is the writer of a gospel would have to have. He spent a lot of time with Peter. He, he hung out with him quite a bit. And he was renewed and he was strengthened and Paul recognized it and whatever disagreement there was, whatever breach in that relationship there was, it obviously was healed and John Mark took his place as a, a valued fellow soldier with the Apostle Paul. 
a student of Peter, one whom God used to accomplish good things for the church, and one whom God used to write one of the four Gospels. It was probably written sometime in the late 50s, maybe 20 or 25 years after the events took place. It may have been written before Matthew and Luke, although some scholars think that they probably were all written in the 50s and 60s, somewhere in that period of time. And that makes perfect sense. Because for the earliest years of the church, the apostles were still alive and they were still available and they could answer questions and they could tell the uh, account of Christ's life. But as the church grew and it spread out, the apostles were not able to get to all the churches. And, and there was increased uh, pressure, increased uh, uh, persecution of the churches. And the churches themselves began to want a copy of what the apostles were teaching because it may be that with all this persecution, the apostles might not be with us forever. And so we ought to have a written record of our Lord's life and ministry. So Matthew, who was one of the twelve, began writing. Luke, who was a close associate of the Apostle Paul and who says at the beginning of his Gospel, he checked things out. He examined carefully because there were a lot of so-called Gospels popping up. Some of them may not have been very accurate. Luke began to write under the, the tutelage of the Apostle Paul and Mark under the direction of the Apostle Peter. Irenaeus, who's one of the later church fathers in, an, in another century, says that, that John Mark was the interpreter of Peter. And interestingly enough, if you look at how Peter presents Jesus and the Gospel to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, and where he starts the story and how he unfolds that story of Christ, it really parallels the structure of the Gospel of Mark. And so, God in His wisdom, in His providence, prepares the church with these Gospel accounts early on in its ministry, while many of the apostles are still living, and he's preparing the church for the long haul. Jesus is coming back, and Jesus himself said it. And the church has been waiting and looking for that return. In fact, it's said that as, as the early believers would meet one another, and they would, they would remind one another that the Lord is returning, and as they'd be traveling on the road, they might look down at an intersection to, just to see not so much if the chariots are safe to cross, but... Uh, is the Lord coming? Because, remember how he approached the disciples from Emmaus, or on the way to Emmaus? He just kind of showed up and walked with them for a while. And so there was a great expectation in the early church that, you know what, we might just be going along here and the Lord's going to show up. We want to be ready. Well, as time went by and they began to realize that maybe the Lord's return is a little bit further out and, 
and there might be some more time that goes by, they wanted that record. And so God used John Mark to provide some of that information. Now Matthew is written primarily to a Jewish audience. There's lots of stuff in there that would be of particular interest to Jewish people. We're not surprised because Matthew was Jewish and he's writing to his own people. The book of Luke is written primarily to the Greek world. And we're not surprised because Luke was not Jewish. Luke was a Gentile. He was a physician. He was very well acquainted with the broader Greek world. His training as a physician would have been in that Greek environment. And so he comes to this under the direction of the Apostle Paul and he's writing for a Greek audience. So we see that flavor there in his Gospel. John, who writes his Gospel much later, is kind of filling in. He was the last of the Apostles. Uh, he, he lived longer than any of the others. And probably in the late 80s, early 90s, the Spirit of God prompts the Apostle John to record the things that John knew and remembered. And, and John's Gospel is very different. It's written to the whole world. He starts out in the grand flow of things. In the beginning was the Word. And it kind of takes us back to Genesis. In the beginning. And John really presents Jesus as the Son of God to the world. Mark is written to the Romans. You remember who the Romans were? They were the occupiers. They were the military power. They were the empire of the day. And John Mark's Gospel is written to the Roman people, to the Roman mind. It's really amazing. Uh, when, whenever Mark uses an Aramaic term that his Roman readers would have said, what? He translates it for them. He makes sure that it's, it's explained so that his readers can understand. Sometimes, instead of using Aramaic or Greek terms that appear in the other Gospels, Mark will use a Latin word. A Latin word. For example, when, when John the Baptist is beheaded and he's killed you know, because of Herodias uh, and Herod, the word that Mark uses is the Latin word for executioner. Would have been absolutely appropriate because he would have been a Roman soldier and that would have connected with the Roman audience. And there's some other little places. Instead of using Jewish coin terms, he uses Latin coin terms and, and, and different things so that we realize that God is is preparing this gospel specifically for a Roman audience. He explains Jewish customs and he omits a lot of... There, there are some references, in fact we're going to see one too, right here at the very beginning, to the Old Testament. But not nearly as many as you find in Matthew or Luke or John. Because the Romans would have been unfamiliar with the Old Testament. They, they would have not made that connection. And... In the 
scene of the crucifixion as Jesus is going out of Jerusalem. He's been condemned. He's carrying his cross and he cannot bear the weight of it any longer and falls down under the load. They get a fellow who's coming in from Cyrene. Simon is his name. And they grab him and they make him carry the cross. And John Mark identifies him a little more fully. He says that he is Simon of Cyrene who carried Jesus' cross, the father of Rufus. And we learn from the book of Acts that Rufus was a, a leader in the church at Rome. So Mark is making all these little connections so that his Roman audience will understand who Jesus is. Mark, maybe it's because of his youth, he was just a young teen during the ministry of Christ on earth, maybe it's because of his youth, he is a man in a hurry. If you read through the book of Mark, over 40 times you come across the word immediately. This happened immediately, this happened immediately, this happened immediately, this happened, and just bang, 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 bang. One thing right after another. Mark is a man in a hurry. And that fits well with a Roman approach to life. They were an empire. They had a world to conquer. They were in a hurry. <laughs> they wanted to do that. And Mark spends a little more time than the other evangelists emphasizing the power of Jesus Christ. Power over the, the physical world. Power over the demonic world power in all kinds of ways well that would have spoken to a roman audience wouldn't it after all weren't they the world power and yet john mark wants them to understand that though they may be a power there is a power far greater than rome you know i look at the world uh, political systems today and they all want to be powers, don't they? Great powers, economic powers, military powers, social powers. Beloved, there is a power that is far greater than any power this world has to offer. There is the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the greatest power in the universe the one who brought the universe into existence, who will rule and reign over this world. And all of the systems arrayed against that will come to nothing. John Mark wants his readers to know who Jesus is. So let's take a look at what he has to say for us here. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We're off to the races already. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot in this verse. I could have probably spent the whole morning on the verse. I'll try to resist the urge. This is the beginning. This is the announcing of the good news. The word gospel means good news. Whenever Caesar would go someplace... He would always send before his entourage a messenger or messengers. And these messengers would come 
with a message to the town where Caesar was going to visit. And they would say, we have good news. Caesar is coming. The one that you long for, the one that you obey. Caesar is coming. And so John Mark just borrows that thing that the Romans would have been very familiar with, and he says, I'm going to announce to you the good news. It's not Caesar. It's not Caesar at all. I'm announcing to you the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus emphasizes His human name. It's His Jewish name. Yeshua. It comes from the Hebrew word yasha, which means to save. The, the name means God saves. So whenever Mary was calling Jesus in for lunch, she was out there saying, God saves! God saves! Come on home for lunch! That's what Yeshua means. That's what Joshua means. Jesus is His human name. Christ is His divine title. It's not His last name. It's His divine title. And it's the Greek form of the Hebrew word Mashiach, Messiah. He is God's anointed deliverer. Put them together. God saves through God's anointed deliverer. John wants, or Mark wants us to know who it is we're talking about here right at the very beginning. This is the beginning of the good news and it concerns Jesus, the Messiah, and then just so that we don't miss it at all, he says it very clearly, very plainly, the Son of God. The Son of God. This would have been a bombshell to the Latin-speaking audience, to the Roman world. Because they considered Caesar to be a god. One of the things that was a problem for the church in the early days was the, the annual recognition of Caesar as Lord. You would go, and whether some places was annual, some places other lengths of time, but you were required as a Roman citizen every so often to go to the public temple one of the temples, it didn't really matter, but you could go to one of the temples and you would take a little pinch of incense and you would drop that incense on the altar and you would say, Caesar Curios, Caesar is Lord. And you'd get your little certificate and you'd be a citizen in good standing. Do you see any parallels with anything in this world today? You know, we need little certificates, don't we, to say that we've done what the society has demanded us to do. We need to be good citizens and knuckle under and do those things. Well, the Christians back then couldn't do it. Because Caesar is not Curios. See, uh, Jesus, Yeshua, Jesus in, in Latin. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And, and that would have been 
at the very first sentence in the book would have been a shock to the Roman audience. Do you mean that everything our society has accepted, everything that our society has believed, everything that our government puts forward, all of that stuff that says that, that Caesar is a god, that Caesar is Lord, that Caesar is the one to whom we owe our highest allegiance, do you mean to tell me that all of that is wrong? Yes. All of that is wrong. So if you got past the first verse of this little gospel, you are on your way to salvation. I wonder how many people saw this and read this and thought about it and turned around and walked away. Our world demands conformity. Our world demands it. But as believers in Jesus Christ, though we live in this world, and though we are a part of this world, we are not those who belong in this world. This world is not our home. God has called His children out of this world to new life in Christ. We don't, we don't seek to destroy or undermine this world. In fact, history demonstrates clearly that wherever Christianity has gone, wherever Christianity has been received, the lives of the people, whether believers or not in that area, have increased. They've improved. Educationally, Christianity has done more for this world than anything else. Why? Why would that be so? Because God has communicated in a book, and if people can't read, they don't know what God has said. So let's start a school. Let's train people to read so they can read the Word of God. You look in most places in the world and they live in absolute squalor. Why is it different where Christianity has gone? Because we realize that God is a God of holiness and that when we are in a right relationship with God, we seek to live a holy life and that even extends to the, the basic cleanliness of life. We realize that life is a stewardship from God and it's not just an accident. And that whole mindset begins to change. And when a society turns to God, the whole society experiences, to some degree, a lifting up and improving. Now, don't ever mistake that for the Gospel. Okay, That's a byproduct of the Gospel. The Gospel says you get yourself in a right relationship with your Creator through faith in Jesus Christ and let God do the work inside of you and as He does that work inside of you, then other things change on the outside. 
But wherever Christianity has been rejected and pushed aside, what do you see happening? You see the enslavement of people. You see the denigration of women. You see all kinds of squalor. You see a, a, a development of an extremely elite class and a bunch of serfs down here who serve the elite. The dominating force so when john is writing or mark is writing this gospel he's writing a bombshell in the very first verse jesus christ the son of god jesus has come to change everything jesus did not come to be an add-on you know, we like little add-on things. You buy something from a company and, and you expect the product to come. And if you find the little piece of candy in the bottom of the box, isn't that nice? Doesn't that just lift your spirit and make you feel good about that company and you want to do business with them again? You know, we, we think that's a little add-on, a little plus, a little value-added thing. And a lot of people look at Jesus that way. Oh, I've got a life and, and it's, it's, a, it's a nice life and I like it. And... Yeah, well, let's add Jesus on to that so that when I die, then, then that's all taken care of. I don't really need him now, but we'll just add him on for later. There's no gospel in that, folks. There's no truth in that. There's no reality there in that thinking. Jesus has come to save souls, to be King of kings and Lord of lords. He has come to be Jesus, the Lord and Savior. And it's a complete change of life. A complete change of attitude. A complete change of goals and desires. Everything changes. Well, this wasn't a surprise. And John Mark wants them to understand that. Notice what he says in verse 2. As it is written in the prophets. Now some of your translations might say as it's written in the prophet Isaiah. Our translators are trying to help us here a little bit with a common Jewish expression. Whenever the Jews were writing something and they wanted to mention something in the Old Testament and maybe string a couple of, of verses along together to prove their point, they might choose them from various books of the Old Testament, but attribute it to the major source. So some of you, as you look at your Bible, it'll say, as it's written in Isaiah the prophet. And then you'll look at the rest of verse 2, and maybe you have a footnote there, and it says Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. And sure enough, it's a quote from Malachi. And then you look at the next verse, verse 3, and it says Isaiah 40, verse 3. And sure enough, it's an exact quote from Isaiah chapter 40. And you're thinking, wait a minute. What's going on here? Why are they attributing it to Isaiah? Because he was the better known prophet. The ancient world didn't document things like you and I are taught to do, you know, in, in our modern world. Sometimes, you know, Jesus would, when he was teaching, he would just say, what do you read in the prophets? He would just kind of lump it together and ask for sort of a summary statement of the prophets. Or he would, he would mention the prophets or the law and he would quote a specific verse. He was being absolutely accurate. 
And everybody in Jesus' day understood that. Everybody understood it. So to quote from Malachi and to quote from Isaiah and to attribute it to Isaiah, it's not an error in fact. It's just simply a common way of expressing the combination by referring to the better known prophet. So that's not, it's not an issue at all. But what he does say about this is important here for us. As it's written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. That's Malachi. That's the, the physical preparation. The, the announcement to the people at large, the Messiah is coming. Here comes the King. But then Isaiah, the passage there, is, is adding on to it the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make His paths straight. A number of commentators have suggested that this idea of making His paths straight was an emphasis on preparing the heart. What, what path? Not, not so much the physical path. I mean, it wouldn't be a problem to have a curve in the road, but rather to make the path uh, to your life open and accessible and straight and available. It could well be right. It could well be right. Because when Jesus is coming, He's not coming to set up His kingdom right here on earth then and now. He's coming to deal with the hearts of people. The hearts and minds of those who heard His Word. You see, that's the problem. We want the benefits of God's kingdom, but we don't want to change our hearts and minds. It's kind of like when, when Jesus was being accused and they were seeking to put Him to death, and Jesus said, for which of these miracles, for which of these works are you, you going to kill me? And they replied, oh, it's not for good works. I mean, who didn't want to be healed? <laughs> who didn't want to have a free meal? Who didn't want to see a miracle? Herod wanted to see a miracle. Oh, that's amazing. That's, that's, wow, we, we want to see God perform things. We want to see that kind of stuff. But what we don't want is God telling us that we're not right with Him. Because we think we're okay. And the world is still the same way today. They don't get angry because Christians build hospitals or schools or do humanitarian works like send food boxes to war-torn areas. No, nobody's getting mad at that. They're happy to receive those gifts. They're happy to receive those things. But what they don't want is the message that you and I, in our natural human condition, are not acceptable to God. We're not right before Him. And in fact, we're under God's judgment. And we're about to be condemned. And we have the opportunity to turn and be saved. But I don't want to admit that I'm a sinner. I don't want to admit that I'm not a nice person. And so people react against 
the message. John came, in verse 4, baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Now there were lots of, like, it was called proselyte baptism in uh, the ancient world. And if a person wanted to become Jewish, they were born Gentile, but they, for whatever reason, wanted to become Jewish, they, they were baptized. But it was a self-immersion. You, you put yourself down into the water. And it was, it was a demonstration of, of cleansing, of leaving the old life and having a new life and so forth. That's not what John's talking about here. Or Mark. That's not what Mark is talking about. He says that John came baptizing in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And John is preaching to the Jewish people. He's preaching to his own. And he's telling them that they have sin and they're not ready for the kingdom. And so this proclamation this admonition to be baptized was different the Jewish people thought they were in their children of Abraham we're good and John says no you're not no you're not look at the heart there's sin there so we're going to be baptized identifying yourself as a sinner who needs to experience God's mercy. And that was a shock. That was a shock. Going down here, it says that uh, the whole land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. I'm not sure that every single person person was there it's kind of one of those things that you and i say you you go to a you, you go to a, a party or something or you go downtown to um a, a festival of some kind and maybe somebody asks you later well you know who all was there say, oh man everybody was there <laughs> everybody wasn't there but but it's it's a common way of expressing there was a huge crowd Mark is doing the exact same thing. There was a huge crowd. John was out there preaching for some time and a huge crowd from Judea. Not all on the same day and probably not every single person, but a huge crowd went out to see him. A huge crowd went out to hear him. And of that huge crowd, there was a bunch of them that identified with John's message and they were baptized. It was... It was a message of hope, but it wasn't a message of hope in themselves. It was a message of hope in what God was going to do. That God's kingdom is coming, and God's going to do something about this situation that we're in. And they wanted to identify with that. You know, beloved, God is coming. His kingdom is coming. But the problem is in identifying with that, we have to first deal with our sin. And that's why I don't think everybody that came to hear John was baptized. 
I think some of them were not quite ready to do... They, they were just like you and me. Just like people in our world today. Oh, they want God's benefits. But do they want to come God's way? Hmm. Maybe not. Verse 6, John was an interesting fellow. This prophet... He was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. Now if we put that on our next church dinner, um, I'm guessing probably many of you will not come. <laughs> Even if we fry those locusts, which are supposed to taste like bacon bits, but don't ask me because I'm not going to try them. <laughs> John was identifying himself with Elijah, the prophet of old. Elijah also lived out in the wilderness for a time and he was a rough fella. He ate off the land and he proclaimed God's word and he had the, the kind of the rough clothing of a prophet. And he's coming in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. Jesus even will identify John the Baptist as that one coming in the spirit and the power of Elijah later on. John the Baptist is getting the people's attention with the message that he's preaching. Now I have to tell you that he's not a member of a denomination, okay? So don't think of when it says John the Baptist, don't start looking for, you know, Peter the Brethren or something like that. No, 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 there's, there's no denominations here. We probably should translate it as John the Baptizer because that was the thing that really marked out his message, that he was preaching an identification, a baptism of repentance, calling people to a right relationship with God. And so this John is the forerunner, and he's preaching, and he says in verse 7, there comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And people have looked at that and they've come up with all kinds of really weird ideas about what that means. Some kind of showy, you know, language, miracle, something. Very simple. The Holy Spirit is the agent God uses to place us into the family of Christ. He is the adoptive agent, if you will. In other words, when we go from the kingdom of darkness out here in the world in unbelief and we come to know Christ as our Savior, it is the Holy Spirit who puts us into or baptizes us into the family of God. He is that adoptive agent who makes us a part of Jesus Christ. That's what John is talking about. He says, listen, I'm baptizing you with water. This is an outward expression of your identification with my message of repentance, of sinfulness, and your need to be forgiven. This is an outward thing. But when Jesus comes, when the Messiah comes, He's going to do something far greater. It's not going to be an outward symbol. It's going to be the real thing. He is going to take you out of this world and through the power of the Holy Spirit, He is going to place you into the family of God. Those blood-bought, forgiven believers. Children of Almighty God. That's what John is talking about here. 
And what a tremendous work that is. John was preparing the way, this prophet. He was preparing the way. But it's Jesus who does the work. It's Jesus who fulfills all of the Old Testament prophecies. It's Jesus who secures our salvation on the cross. And it's Jesus Christ who makes us secure in the kingdom. <coughs> Excuse me. So, verse 9. It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. He was not baptized because of sin, because Jesus had no sin. He was baptized in identifying with John because this was the need of the people. And Jesus in his humanity was representing the people and the people needed this and Jesus is coming to provide the salvation that they need. He's marking himself off, setting himself off in his public ministry. This is before that public ministry begins. And Jesus is being marked out by God. Look at what happens as a result. Verse 10. And immediately, here's our word, hang on, coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Wow. By the way, there's a picture of the Trinity right at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, which culminates in our salvation. God the Father is speaking from heaven. Jesus the Son is standing in the water. God the Holy Spirit is descending in a visible form of a dove and lighting upon Him. It's pictured for us there. It's not just Jesus who has our salvation, a part in our salvation. It's the triune God. It's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God the Father sends the Son. The Son does the work on the cross. And it's God the Holy Spirit who draws men and women and children to Christ and who baptizes them by placing them into the body of Christ when they put their faith in Him. Isn't it amazing what God's done? It all fits. The picture is consistent. Verse 12, immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and was with wild beasts. And the angels ministered to him. Wow, we get two verses, and that covers what Matthew and Luke take about a chapter to cover. <laughs> but Mark's a man in a hurry. He wants to get to the bottom line. He wants to demonstrate that Jesus is the Savior of the world. He wants his hearers to come to that conclusion swiftly and quickly. And he does all this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Mark's not leaving anything out. He's not skipping over these things as if they were unimportant or as if they didn't happen. No, no, and he's not skipping over them because he's not aware of them. He's focused on his purpose. And under the administration of the Spirit of God, he's crafting the, the telling of these events to accomplish his purpose. 
If you've ever taught school, you know exactly what John Mark is doing here. He's preparing his lesson plan to get the main point across. And he's not following any rabbit trails. That's exactly what he's doing. And that's exactly what Matthew's doing. When he gives a whole bunch more detail on this topic, he's not chasing a rabbit trail. He's addressing issues that the Jewish audience would have been intensely interested in. And so he's writing his gospel for his audience under the control and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. God wants us to understand. He's given us four pictures of the Messiah. And when we put them all together, wow, we have like this 3D printing of Jesus. We really get an understanding and an idea of who He is and what He's done and, and how it fits together and all of the glory of it. But here, in verse 14 and 15, we see that Jesus is preaching the very same thing that the Old Testament was preaching, that John the Baptist was preaching. It says, now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee. Oh, by the way, between verses 13 and 14, there's probably about six months of time there. Once again, Mark just jumps right over that. We discover in Matthew and Luke and in John that Jesus, after He was baptized, He was in Jerusalem for a while, teaching in Judea, and He went up through Samaria, and He talked to the woman at the well there, and there, there were a number of things that went on, and He gets, gets up to, to uh, Galilee, and John, or Mark, excuse me, picks it up once He's in Galilee, after Herod had beheaded John the Baptist, the, the herald. You know, if somebody would have beheaded one of Caesar's heralds that he sent before him into a town that he was about to go into, that person would have been in a lot of trouble. <laughs> um, to behead the herald of the Messiah, Herod beheaded, this is hard, Herod beheading the herald got himself in a lot of trouble. Humanity cutting off the proclamation of the gospel, not wanting to hear about the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords gets itself into a lot of trouble. There's a lot of parallels here. But here's the message that Jesus preached. Verse 15, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent. The word repent means to change the mind, to change the direction. You know, you used to think one way about God. You used to think one way about your own life. You used to think that you were in pretty good shape and really God's going to kind of grade on the curve. And so if I've if I got more good in me than I've got bad in me, then I'm in heaven, I'm good to go, and let's just keep on living. That's what many people think. We need to repent because that's not the truth. That might sound appealing, but it's not the truth. And, and to repent encompasses with it not just sorrow for our sin, because you can be sorry for something you've done and not regret doing it. You're just sorry you got caught. 
Repentance goes beyond sorrow and says, you know what? What I did, what I said, what I thought, my disobedience was an offense against Almighty God and is worthy of my eternal condemnation. God, I have treated you with contempt. Forgive me. I repent of that. I don't want those things in my life anymore. I don't want to respond to you that way. I'm changing the way that I'm thinking about you. And when the thinking changes, the direction changes. We were going away from God. Now we are going toward God. Repent, Jesus says. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Believe the gospel. The good news is that Jesus Christ is the door to eternal life. The good news is that Jesus Christ has accomplished a complete reconciliation between God, the offended party, and man, the offending party. And we don't have to be at enmity anymore. If we come to know Jesus Christ as our Savior, confessing our sin, forsaking our sin, God receives us and puts us into His family. That message is going to come back time and time and time again throughout the Gospel of Mark. Everything that Mark writes is written to drive that message home. And Mark is going to do it in a really, really fast, immediate way. He wants his hearers to understand clearly that there is one way of salvation. And that is through Jesus Christ. And beloved, that's what I want you to understand this morning. As we work our way through this Gospel and we see all the things that Jesus does and we listen to the words that He says, we need to come to that place where we recognize the truth of life. That Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. That He has what I need, what you need. And we can receive that gift of eternal life. We can receive that gift of forgiveness through faith in Him alone. The world is not going to save you. Jesus, Jesus saves. Turn to Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the clarity of Your Word. And Father, I pray that truly it has been made more clear in our minds today. Thank You for using men like Mark, to write this precious Word. Men who were just like us, and they didn't get it right all the time, and, and sometimes they failed you, but Lord, you, you worked in their lives, and you brought them to a place of maturity, and you used them for your glory. And so, Father, we pray that you would do that with us today. That you would help us to grow in our faith, and and really to become mature in it and solid and strong and able to stand up and make a difference in this world. Lord, the world we live in is just like the world You came to. It is a world that is lost. 
a world that is at enmity with You. But Father, You reached out to this world and You provided salvation. Help us, Lord, to make that same proclamation in this world in which we live. And whether they believe or whether they don't, help us to be faithful. To be faithful to You. We pray it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.